going back to a sermon series we started a couple years ago looking at the witnesses of Christmas. What do the people from the Christmas story tell us about Jesus, but also what do they tell us about ourselves? And I will admit to you that this week and next week are not easy stories. These, the, the testimonies of these witnesses are difficult to hear, uh, but they are part of the story. And sadly, they're part of our story, showing us our deep need for a Savior. And so we get into Matthew's version of the Christmas story. Each gospel has a unique presentation of Jesus and why he has come, and especially of the birth narrative. You get into Matthew, it's very unique, and when he starts his gospel, he starts with a genealogy. Are you on the edge of your seats for that? Would you like me to read it? Let me tell you something. Back in their day, they were on the edge of their seats. They were probably standing in their seats saying, more, more, because it says something of the work of God, the promises of God, the sovereignty of God. But that's a difficult first book, and for me, maybe for you, to begin the story of Christ coming to be with his people. But look at the other bookend, where we are now with the three wise men and Herod. But those are the bookends of the Christmas story. Actually, in Matthew's birth story for Jesus, eight verses. That's all you get. You get double that, basically, in the genealogy. You get double uh, of that where we are today in talking about Herod and his response to the Christ. Now, why would Matthew do that? Could it be that Matthew's building a case of who this Jesus is? And to make sure that we understand, yes, he's of the house of David. He has royal blood in his veins. And yes, even the kings of this earth will do whatever they can to stop Christ. Why? Because he is king of all kings and lord of all lords. It fits, as we said last week, what Matthew is trying to share with us about the Christ who was born in that manger. He is the king. Now, who is this Herod? Who is this one who's pursuing Christ? Who is this one who is in their struggle in that day, and it would have been a struggle for them, he's half Jewish, and yet somehow he's put into power to be over the people by the emperor. And he's, he's, kind, of, he's kind of done whatever they've said. So he's moved from governor to king. Now, some of them like him because in 25 B.C., when there were some issues with a drought or with, with food, he gave bread to the masses. He was also a great builder. Matter of fact, in his buildings, he's the one who rebuilt the temple. And it was even more lavish than when the first temple was built. That should shake us when we hear that. That somehow you think, or I think, that I can do something to improve whatever God's designs are for things. That, that I could tell God what his word ought to say. I could tell God what he ought to do and how he ought to act. And how. You, ever, you, ever be, you ever tempted to do that? To clean up God's word for him so it's more palatable for folks? You ever get tempted to do that? To say, well, this is really how family ought to look. Let me clean this up. This is really how, th whatever it may be, you see Herod adding on to, and this isn't the only time he's added on to. He was known, there was a, a fortress or a place he had built for himself called the Herodium, uh, it was 50 feet higher than the great pyramid of Giza. It had Roman baths, an amphitheater for 900, state-of-the-art laser tag. It, 
Just seeing if you're listening. I know it's been a long weekend. I want you with me. But all of this self-glorification, look at this mountain that's named after, who should I name it after? Oh yeah, me. And look at all this stuff. I rebuilt the temple and it's more lavish than God said. I've made this place for myself and it glorifies me. And then you hear what Paul says about Christ in Colossians and Philippians. Colossians 1, starting at verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And then Paul says in Philippians 2, Although Jesus existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Jesus is born and only a handful of nobodies recognizes him. Herod says, look at me, and Jesus, the, the firstborn of all, the one who is for all, and ha- nobody notices. A true display of the humility and other-centered love of our Savior. And we bump into this passage, and we come to this holy meal, and it's a check against our lives and against how we order our lives to say, Lord, is there any place in my life where it's me first? There are places in my life where it's, look at me. There are places in our life, as we look at Herod's life too, where we might try to hold on to things the way we want them. That's, that's Herod's life. He's killed his own wife. He's killed his own mother-in-law. Nobody smile. Okay. He's killed his three sons. The Roman emperor actually went on to say that it's easier and safer to be Herod's pig than to be his relative. Because he's suspicious. He's paranoid. He's grasping always for himself. He had six different wills that he would move from from time to time. Just paranoid, wondering who would be next. Even when he died, he rounded up the people of where he died, their most distinguished citizens, so that when he died, he would have them executed so there would be weeping and wailing in the streets the day he died. Consumed with self, paranoid, who's coming to get me? I walked out for the coin toss in high school football, and across from me is probably... uh, the toughest guy I ever played against. He was, he, was, he was so good that the year before, our starting running back, and I teased him about it just a few months ago, our starting running back quit at halftime because he didn't want to get hit by this middle linebacker anymore. That's how mean this guy was. And I won't say his name in case he's watching. Uh, I walked out, and he was shaking, and he was sweating, and he looked at me, and he called me by name. Now, I had no idea this guy knew my name. I didn't want this guy to knew my, know my name, right? For years, been hoping I didn't have to block him or I didn't have to go across the middle because he was a killer of men. He was a monster. And he looked at me and he said, Barry Mail, 
Barry Mail, I know that's you who's been calling my mom all week, threatening her, and I am going to kill you. That's the only time I had a snappy answer to something. And so I quickly said, we can go now or we can wait till the game. In my heart, I was praying, dear Lord, send your angels. By your spirit, draw these referees between us, which they did. God answered my prayer. He's faithful, y'all. And split us up. That guy played probably the worst game of his high school career. This guy could have played anywhere. He didn't, but he could have played anywhere. Uh, because he was trying to kill me. His coaches were getting on to him, but he was playing out of his head because he tried to kill me because he thought I was calling his mom all week. I shared a version of that story one time. I was preaching at a revival in Simpson County at a Southern Baptist church, and I shared that story, and somebody came up to me afterwards and says, Brother Barry, I need to apologize to you. I said, why do you need to apologize? I was on that coaching staff. I said, yeah, so? Our head coach called his mom every day that week. <laughs> said that he was you. This is Barry Mail. If your son plays, I'm going to kill you. Hang up. Just over and over to make him crazy. He was rightfully crazy, right? Herod is paranoid. Herod is grasping out of his mind, killing everyone, trying to hold on desperately to what is his? Do we, do we do that? Hold on to, Lord Jesus, you can come, and Lord Jesus, you can have my heart, but, but this part of my life, or this part of my life, or this part of my family, or this part of my church, or this part, whatever it may be, my witness, my serving, that, that's kind of my deal. And I kind of like it this way. Herod is troubled. The city is troubled. Luke tells us Mary is troubled. You bump into Jesus, you ought to be troubled. You ought to be blown away by grace and love and beauty and holiness, but it ought to trouble your spirit. Because when he comes, as Josh McDowell or C.S. Lewis or all the great apologists say, he comes to be Lord. You can either be indifferent like the chief priests, and they pay a price for that. You can be heated and hate him, as Herod does, or you submit to him as lordship. There's no in-between. There's no gray area. When Christ comes, he comes to trouble. Comes to save? Yes. But he comes only to be Lord. So the contrast is clear. And you see the contrast here in our passage this morning. When the wise men who had things that they could have grasped, gifts, political power, when they hear of the Christ, what does our passage say? They're filled with joy and they worship. Herod's playing a very different game. And that's part of the witnesses of Christmas. I know it's a year or two later, but it's a reminder again, the bookend of Matthew's story. He wants us to know that Christ is king. And when he comes, he troubles us and says, how will you submit to this king? Where is that as part of our response not only to Christmas, but as we share in this meal and are offered grace upon grace. Whatever we're wrestling with this morning, if we bring it to the Lord, he'll meet us in this meal. That's his promise. He promises to be present with us when we remember him. But as we remember, may our hearts truly be grateful and responsive to the troubling of the Holy Spirit. Lord, is there any place, anywhere, 
that I'm missing your will for my life, for my work, for my play, for my family, for my role in my church, whatever that may be, you come. You're already king. You come now and take that from me. That's the invitation this morning as we come to this meal. To say yes to him, to come as Lord, but also to say yes to Christ who offers us his grace. And so the invitation to all of us this morning is that all of us are invited who love Jesus, who earnestly repent of our sins, and who seek to live in peace with one another. On the night in which Christ was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks to God, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to God, gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and cup. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit in your holy church all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen.